read a short passage. We like to stand for reading the word. So in Genesis chapter 14, and then while you're getting going there, you can also go to Hebrews. Uh, we'll begin in chapter 5 because we're going to look at Melchizedek this morning. But Genesis 14 is where, where we first uh, read of this mysterious yet majestic person, uh, Melchizedek. So in Genesis 14, verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of these kings who were with and with these kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of all. So, Lord, we need, we know, we need your Holy Spirit. We love your word, but, Father, we need you to open our ears to hear, our eyes to, to see, our heart to understand, and then, Lord, to apply the things this morning, to take them to heart and realize that your word is like a seed. And when planted, has all the capacity to change our lives radically. So, Lord, that's what we desire. We're hungry. Feed us, Lord. The things I prepared, I ask your blessing over them. You break them fresh. And this morning, Lord, we're giving our ears to hear your word as we read it now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So we've titled this whole series, Journey. And like Abram, we're all on a journey of faith. So we're, we're seeking to put one foot in front of another. We talked about a walk. We're just seeking to walk, walk side by side with Jesus and be sort of in harmony with him as we do so. So last week, we looked at when faith goes to war. I'm not going to recap that, but just due to what we want to go through tonight. But I hope that if you haven't heard it, you will, because it's a really important message. We're at war. Now, Jesus crosses the path of all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. And this, this war that we're in, first and foremost, is the battle for your soul. Jesus went to the cross to die on a cross for your sin so that God could win you over. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God wants to win you by his love. And he demonstrated that love, Romans tells us, on the cross. Greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friend. Jesus said that. God demonstrated his love toward you, toward me, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So you didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve it, but God loves us, and thus he has provided, as we'll see again this morning, his plan and purpose has always been out of his love, God is love, it's out of his love to re, re, reconcile us to himself so that we might have a relationship with he who created us to know him, and if you don't know him, you have a huge, huge void that you cannot fill with anything else because God created and designed us to know him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. It's relationship that God is wanting. So that first battle is for you, the unbeliever, who have not surrendered your life to Christ. That's the first battle. And if you haven't done that yet, may you understand, there's a fight, a battle going on. God's love is seeking to win you, woo you through the cross, understanding what he accomplished for you. And then when you come to him, his body has been given, we, the church, to understand this thing called love one another. Now, my fellow soldiers... That's what we're going to talk this morning about. The battle is on. Would you say amen? Have you declared war? Have you taken up your cross to follow Christ in victory? That's what we need to be doing. So this spiritual battle is waging on earth but in the heavenlies. 
So it's on earth in this dimension called time that God is training us and equipping us for his future kingdom, and it's in our fight of faith in following him. And so this battle is for our allegiances and our loves. Who do you love supremely? What are your allegiances to? And listen, it will not let up until Jesus comes again. Can you hear an amen? And he is coming again. He's going to return and establish his kingdom on earth. That's what we're looking forward to. But in the meantime, we're in a battle. It's a war. And Jesus will return, and he will set up his kingdom, the final victory. And all God's people said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Can you say that? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we're, Lord, would you please come, and let's get, it, let's get on with it. Amen? Okay. So, as Abraham has this battle... These two kings meet him as he's returning from this stunning victory. I'll let you go to last week's study. This guy named the king of Sodom, Bera, wicked, and then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, this Melchizedek walks into the scriptures for three verses in Genesis chapter 14. Then he walks out of the scriptures. And then he walks back in about a thousand years later in Psalm 110, verse 4, and it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent your priest forever according to your Melchizedek. So you get... Genesis 14, then 1,000 years later, Psalm 110, and then he walks right back out again. So he's this mysterious kind of figure. He's revealed two times in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Now, he then walks back into the Scriptures, but listen, he doesn't do that until after Jesus came, after he lived, after he died, after he rose again, after he walked the earth for 40 days and after he ascended into heaven. Then, and after that whole revelation of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7 comes along, or 5, comes along, and we begin to hear about Melchizedek nine times he's mentioned. Six times according to the order of Melchizedek. So this guy is important, but had Jesus never come, we'd have more questions than we would answers. It's through the revelation of Jesus Christ that we'll look at this morning, and I hope that we can do a somewhat thorough job with all the passages that we want to go through. But Abram's response to Melchizedek, the revelation, the oaths that were sworn, and then his response is clarified for us. We understand this whole thing because of Hebrews, because Jesus came, and the full weight and the full measure of those things is something to be plumbed for the rest of our lives. This guy that we see Melchizedek, Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And, now, and, and thanks be to God that Jesus showed up. I look at this passage as Jesus showed up then and he showed up again when he came. And he'll show up again when he comes again. So this morning we want to take a little closer look at this mysterious man named Melchizedek. So if you would turn to Hebrews, still, you go to Revelation, if you don't know where Hebrews is, go to Revelation, this is how I think of it. You got Revelation, the last book. Then you got one book, Jude. Then you got three, two, one. That's John. Then you got two, one. That's Peter. Then you got one, James. And then you're in Hebrews, okay? So eight books back, if you don't know where it is. Three, two, one, two, one, bingo. All right? Now, in Hebrews, it's fantastic. In fact, I just found out uh, from Robin that his, his group is going to try and go through the book of Hebrews in 10 weeks, uh, come the uh, come the fall, uh, we, we, did a fant uh, we, we had a team of five of us that taught this 
couple of years ago, and it was so fun. It's loaded. This book is loaded. It, it radiates the supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews. And we don't know, it's not quite sure who the writer is. I'll tell you who the writer is. The Holy Spirit wrote it, <laughs> and thus it is fantastic, as are all the books of the Bible. So as you go to Hebrews, look at chapter 1. Let's just start there a moment. In verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. I mean, we're just starting out with two verses, and you're already loaded. Through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, he is God, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, this is fantastic. When he had by himself, wow. When he had by himself purged our sins, whew, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Jesus is. That's what Jesus did for us. We don't have to go any further. We could just go to worship right now. This book is loaded with the glory and the radiance of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and who he is. We're going to find a little bit more today about who he is in the order of Melchizedek. So I've titled the study, It Doesn't Get Any Better Than Jesus. Would you say amen? It doesn't get any better than that. And so... An overview of the passages that we're going to talk this morning. It's going to be a real overview. But here are the things I'd like to sort of capture, if, you, if we might. Number one, it's all God and none of me. It's all God, none of me. It's God who appoints, it's God who calls, and it's God who swears or confirms. It's all God. Soak it in. It's all God. Secondly, it is all Jesus for all of me. Jesus is the better promise. Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the better covenant. So these two things sort of banded as I was going about to study and prepare for this book, uh, for this study. So now go to Hebrews 5. I just want to be hitting now this section of where we've, we find Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed, is taken, first of all, from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion to those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself also is subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer up sacrifices for sins. In other words, he's a sinner just like them all. But God's called these priests out for a special calling. And no man, notice this, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is what? Called by God just as Aaron. What? It's God who appoints, it's God who calls, and it's God who confirms what he has already established. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but... It was he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you. 
as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is God the Son, but he's called and appointed by God as Savior, as the high priest. Verse 7, who, here's what he's appointed to, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because what his godly fear, though he was a son, yes, he is, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was completely human. He was appointed to suffering as a human being. And when he was in that garden, it says that it was so intense, his sweat were as it was drops of blood. He endured that hostility, the, the, the incredible battle that was going on. Now, notice verse 11, oh, verse 9, and having been perfected, he went through it perfectly for us. He was appointed to that. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, obey the gospel. Notice, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Stay with me. Verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you the first principles and oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now notice what he says here. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. So what he's saying is he's exhorting these readers to grow up. He's saying, hey, it's time. You should have been further along. Now, he's in a deep subject here, Melchizedek, as the book of Hebrews is. And he's saying, I just want you to, to dig in and grow up and exercise yourself to the things that you're listening to and hearing. Don't just be living frivolously. Don't be friending yourself with the world, but live the life that's ours as we follow our Melchizedek, as we follow Jesus. There should be a change. We should be growing. And so he exhorts them. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, might not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children through the marketplace, chattering about everything but pausing to learn the true value of nothing. We can waste our time on things that don't matter. This is what I would say. Jesus is the measure of the means of really mastering what really matters. It's Jesus. We want to dig in to know Jesus in all the facets, all the radiance of his glory. So he's exhorting the readers to grow up, but notice in verse 12, but beloved, we're confident of better things for you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. You're saved. I'm exhorting you, but I want to encourage you. God's not unjust to forget your work and labor. Love. And so I say again to you, as I say to myself, hey, stay at it. Sometimes it feels like you've been sidetracked. Sometimes it feels like you've been derailed. Sometimes you went up and you're sitting in the bleachers and you're, not, you're just watching. You realize, and, and you know, I was just telling my wife this week, Charlotte, I just said, you know, we're pretty comfortable. Now, I don't think God is, is wanting just to make us uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable. But when I read the call as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it tells me there's got to be some discomfort to it. Take up your cross and follow me. 
There needs to be the sacrificial living in following Christ. And so I just said, I just want to be praying. Lord, what would you have us to do? And I think that needs to be the prayer of all. The encouragement, he's not going to forget your work and labor of love, which you've, and yet you've ministered to the saints and do minister. So I say, stay at it. So the encouragement goes along with the exhortation. And they are based, notice what these are based on, the promises of God. The promises of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after, notice, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men swear, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for, there it is, confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So we have this oath, I swear I'll do it. Okay, good, I'm good, I'm good, we're done. Thus God, here it is, God's the one who determines, it's all God, it's all Jesus. Thus God, determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, is that word, the immutability, unchangeable, and his covenant with Abraham was, was, a, was an uh, immutable, it was an uh, unconditional covenant that he made, unilateral. So God didn't have to do this because God cannot lie. But God wanted us to know that his promises and his covenants are ours to abide in and understand we are secure in what God has promised. So as I go laboring, as I'm doing all these things, it comes back to the basis of it are God's promises to me, his oath to me, and both of those together. So notice what it says. But God determined to show more about to, to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He promised it, and then he swore it. Now, all God really needed was, he didn't even really need to promise it, but he promised. But then he said, just so you know, I'm going to swear to it. This unilateral covenant with Abraham, the unilateral covenant he made with David, the unilateral covenant of the new covenant, God's saying, I promised it, and I'm swearing it. And so by that, we have this incredible anchor to our faith, anchor to our fight, anchor to our labors, because God is faithful. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Notice, when we, may, we, we might have strong consolation who have fled. We got to flee to refuge, for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Jesus is our hope. He is the better hope. Notice verse 19 then. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, our souls, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence, capital P, behind the veil, where the forerunners entered for us. We needed a forerunner. Have even Jesus, have become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All God and none of me. God's the one who appoints, God's the one who calls, and God's the one who confirms it. It's all Jesus for all of me. Jesus is the better promise. Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the better, better covenant. We're anchored in the promise and oath of God for us in this new covenant. It's ours. So who is this person, Melchizedek? Chapter 7 now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, 
who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So who is this guy? Well, in the Old Testament, we have these six facts. He is priest of the Most High God. In other words, he is a mediator. He, is, met, he met Abraham, and, and in Genesis we find he brought out wine, he brought that wine and bread. He is redeemer. Melchizedek blessed Abram. He's better. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. He's greater. He, his, word, his name is translated king of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. God is the righteous one. And king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He is our peace. Now, we read in chapter 3, 7, seven 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This speaks about he is eternal. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. He's made like the Son of God. He's God. Remains, he reigns continually. He's eternal. Now, back in the book of Genesis, genealogy, genealogy, genealogy. And this son beget this son, and that son beget that son. And you, have all, you get to Melchizedek, none of that. Absent. We're not told anything more about him than the things we just said. We don't know his parents. We don't know where he was born. We don't know where he died. We don't know anything except that he is there, Melchizedek. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. To even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And so as he says, let's consider this, and we're told to consider Jesus and consider the one who's, who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself later on in Hebrews. We're to consider the high priest of our confession. He said to consider this man. Think about him. Dig a little deeper. And he says there, verse 5, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi. So now he takes a whole section. He talks about the law, the priesthood that was a part of the law. The sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. They're all Abraham's descendants, so they're, they're equal in that sense. Though they're all descendants of Abraham, when God gave the law through Moses, he appointed or he called and he confirmed it was through the tribe of Levi that God gave this special calling as the priesthood. Now, why wasn't the tribe of Judah? Because God decided it was going to be Levi. That's the only explanation. God determined this is, you see, God's the one who appoints, God calls, and God confirms. That's what God said. He laid it out. There's going to be one of the sons who's going to be the, the one who heads up the priesthood. So they were called to offer sacrifices to God, to minister for God to their brethren. Their brethren were to acknowledge that sacred calling by providing for them, acknowledging their mediatory responsibilities between them and God. Now, I could, you know, I would probably have done the same thing. Well, you know, why, why, why Levi? I mean, you know, why can't I do that? And there was a guy that actually saw, Saul actually got in the way also and paid for it heavily. Why? Because God's the one. It's all God. It's none of me. And so when I submit and surrender to God and understand he is the one who calls the shots, I have peace. It's a great place to be. Okay, God. And then I tell God often, well, now you got me, so I'm your problem. 
Verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes, Melchizedek, from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So here's Abraham, the father of faith, the father of all this the covenant that God established with him and he's still working out. Here's Abraham, and now comes along this Melchizedek from somewhere, and he's actually greater than Abraham. Abraham's giving him a tithe, so Abraham is recognizing he's a mediator. He's recognizing this man, whoever he is, is not like me, and I'm going to give him tithes. And he brought out bread and wine. I think that speaks to us so loudly. Jesus, at the Last Supper, there was bread and there was the cup. And it speaks of mediation. It speaks of redemption. It speaks of salvation. It speaks of suffering and the cross necessary for our salvation. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. So way before the law was given to Moses, Melchizedek shows up as one that Abram recognizes as greater. The patriarch Abraham, he recognizes something about Melchizedek that is literally out of this world. Now, I have no idea what that looked like. I don't know what he looked like. I'm just reading the revelation given to us in Genesis to Abram. And I believe it had a tremendous impact as Abram continued to live his life. Next week, we're going to get into this covenant that God makes with Abram. It is such a fantastic chapter, chapter 15. I hope you'll read it. Chapter 15, because it's going to go right into God saying to Abram, I am your shield and your reward, personally. And he, he solidifies his covenant. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we read Abraham's the great one. Abraham, and indeed he is, but there's one greater. Melchizedek is the better. Melchizedek blessed Abram and all his descendants after him. And then Melchizedek lives. Melchizedek is before Abraham was. He lives. Are you with me? A lot of stuff here. So here, one view of Melchizedek, that Jesus is the priest of God most high in that he is in reality what Melchizedek is in allegory or in type. That's one view of Melchizedek. It's an allegory, it's a type. The other view is Melchizedek is not a type, but a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Now, that's my persuasion at this point. I have a good friend, his name is Greg Parker, and we talk about this, it's fantastic. Just, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to, you know, what do you think? What do you think? You know, I, you know, but it's either one of those two views. Is it just a type? Is he just a type and he actually had a family, but it's just not written? Or is he actually an appearance of the Jesus in the Old Testament, a theophany? The same thing I believe that happened with Joshua as he's coming into the promised land that I talked about in the last study. So thanks be to God that Jesus showed up. Can I hear an amen? That Jesus showed up. Not only then, I believe, but on earth, and he's coming again to give us understanding of God's covenant promises and his oath to Abram, which are still in the process of being fulfilled. So we read an interesting encounter of Jesus that Jesus had in John chapter 8. Let's read it. I'll read it. You can follow. 
Then the Jews, now the Jews hated Jesus, and they were actually began to accuse him of his, work, his good works being of the devil. That's how bad it got. The Jews answered and said to Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Good question. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When I believe, this point in my walk and understanding, it's at this time of Melchizedek. Next one. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring himself to be God. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. I said, sorry, fellas, i got to get to my next appointment. <laughs> he walked right out. And this is a fantastic, fascinating passage where Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Hebrews 7 again. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise, notice here it is again, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Good question. In other words, if what God had promised Abraham, he then planned to accomplish through giving the law to mortal men, then another order of priesthood would be totally unnecessary. But before that whole thing even came along, God is revealing something to Abram, whom he gives the covenant to, about a whole other priesthood that's going to be coming. So the problem with the Levitical priesthood is that it was imperfect and it was managed by imperfect priests. The law was never given, this whole system, the whole thing was never given to make one righteous, but to make sure that they understood how unrighteous they are. And so the sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, were a reminder of sins every day. So the sacrifice being given just reminded them, I'm not right with God again. I'm not right with God again. I need another sacrifice. But the Hebrews also tells us the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So all those bulls and all those animals that were sacrificed were the reminder again and again and again that sin requires death. And yet it must be of equal a human being dying. So that was the continual message to, the, to those people, that there needs to be another sacrifice. And, and obviously, we know who that sacrifice is. Jesus came, and all of those things, it said, were just a shadow. Now, they were shadow because there is substance. If there's no substance, there's no shadow. If there's no Jesus, there's no substance. Jesus came, and when he came, all of a sudden, all of those things that God had been hammering into the, into the hearts of his people through the sacrifices and the priesthood. And by the way, when the priesthood are doing, the priesthood only says, you can't be close to God. 
You can come to the outer court. You can come and worship God. But the priesthood is one that went into the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies once a year. And all that did was signify again, as long as that first room was still standing, that there was not access to God. So the pre- it, it all spoke of a separateness because of sinfulness. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity is also a change of the law. For, of whom, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, the tribe of Judah. For as is evident, our Lord comes from the tribe of Judah, and it says there, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. We have in Jesus also the combining of the priest and the king. I mean, God is amazing. Notice, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if, it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So before the law ever was, Melchizedek always is forever. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because it's weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is, the, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God after the law. Before the law, Ever was, Melchizedek is. After the law, Melchizedek is the bringing in of a better hope. The law is parenthetical. And we'll get this more as we look at the scriptures and the covenant of Abraham. So verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they had made priest without, they are priests because they're of the tribe of Levi. So they don't take, in that sense, they don't need an oath. They're already designated, commanded, appointed by God. And as much as he was not made priest without an oath, no, he couldn't just step into that place. It says there, but, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and we'll not read Psalm 110, you're a priest forever, according to your own God swore it, God did it. God's the one who calls the shots, appoints, and he does it. He confirms it. So Jesus already has been established at the order of Melchizedek, but it goes way back before the law. It goes back, I believe, into eternity. By so much more, Jesus become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. God had an eternal plan, a superior plan, with an eternal person, a superior person. His name is Jesus. It is all God and none of me. It's all Jesus for all of me. That just resonates with my heart when I look at this Melchizedek. Look at these passages. God's oath in promising a better priesthood. A continuing priesthood. A secured priesthood. An unchangeable priesthood. You don't have to worry about it. God didn't change his mind. He doesn't do that. Hebrews 7, 24. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. That means it cannot be altered and it can't be transmitted. It's what it is established by God for us through Jesus Christ. It doesn't need alteration. It doesn't need change. It's perfect. Verse 25, therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So here it is. This is how to respond to this. God's oath in promising a better high priest. He says to them, he's an able high priest. Now, to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel, Paul wrote. 
Again, Paul the Ephesians, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly well, all that you ask or think. Jude said, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, present you faultless. He's a saving to the uttermost. Some said to the guttermost. High priest. Continually, never ending. Those who come to God through him. Seven times in the book of Hebrews, this little phrase, translated a little differently, draw near. Draw near. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, verse 19, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. To imagine that. There's no priest in the way. Our priest is God. There's no separating. There's no waiting till the next day to get the sacrifice again. It's completed, and we can draw near to God. Let us come boldly, draw near to God, to the throne of grace. Let us approach him now that he's made us righteous. Hebrews 10, 20. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it is impossible, but he, for you comes to God must first believe that he is. How do we come to God? Through his promised through Jesus for us. Hebrews 12, 18, you have not come to the mountain that burn with fire and a blackness and darkness and tempest, but you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to those registered in heaven. And since he always lives to make intercession, I want to stop here just a moment, because this is, this is, fascinating to me. The emphasis he always lives is that in his ascension, his intercession is complete. In his ascension, his intercession is complete. So when Jesus was ascended high, what is that? He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, if you were to look into the tabernacle of the temple, there were no chairs in the temple. They were busy doing the sacrifice all the time, all the time, all the time. Not so with Jesus. He is seated. His very presence in heaven is our intercession completed. His wounds have paid my ransom. When Peter, when Thomas is doubting, Jesus didn't say, well, here's the theology behind this whole thing. Let me tell you, Thomas, you doubt. He just said, hey, look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. So when we, sometimes there's this idea, in fact, in some churches, it's still carried on. That there's the need to sort of have the priesthood here to beg God there for you here. So you got this whole thing going on where it's as though Jesus isn't quite done and he's pleading with God, please, please. No, that's not what, he is seated. His intercession is complete in his ascension. That gets me excited. Jesus is seated forever as our mediator intercessor, in our intercessor. For such a high priest was fitting, verse 26, holy, harmless, undefiled, and thus it goes on. We don't have the time this morning. We could go so much into these different details. But he is a forever high priest. He has accomplished for us what God had planned in eternity past. Melchizedek shows up, so God says, here's a little teaser for what's coming. And then Psalm 110, God makes sure his voice is heard. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The eternal God as mediator. 
the eternal God as redeemer, the eternal God as better than all, the eternal God as the one who is, lives for all eternity for us, the Son of God. So he says, verse 8, or chapter 8, he says, this is the main point. This is all we're trying to say after all that. This is the main point of things. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens and minister the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest appointed offer all gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, if it was necessary for this one to have something to offer, in other words, if he was earthly in that sense, he'd be for the tribe of Levi. But now he's obtaining more, verse 6, more excellent, inasmuch as he is the mediator also of a better covenant established on better promises. Verse, now notice, here it is, and we're going to go to communion, which I think is very fitting. Verse 10, would you look at that please with me? Hebrews 8 and 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Lord. By the way, know this, the covenant is through Israel. I will put my laws in their mind. And write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. That's the new covenant. It's unilateral and unconditional. None of them shall teach his neighbor. And none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For... I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And their sin and their lawless deed, I will remember no more. I, what do you do with that? You just got to bow your head and bow your heart and say, it's all God and none of me, but it's all Jesus for all of me. That's what it is. That's the wrap-up. This is the main point. It's all God and none of me. But it's all Jesus for all of me. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.